Thursday, August 10th. Welcome on in to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I am Cherry Gregg. Avi, are you a fan of Jeopardy? I am. I don't want to overstate my credentials. I'm not like an appointment viewer of Jeopardy. It's not on every night at 7, yeah. but I've been watching the show on and off for years and years and years. Yeah, me too. But to, and today, for all our Jeopardy fans, we have host and Jeopardy champion Ken Jennings coming up a little later this that hour. That is exciting. That is exciting. It really is. And we'll talk to him about the show, of course, but also the afterlife. He has a fun, quirky new book out. It's titled 100 Places to See After You Die, A Travel Guide to the Afterlife. We have an interesting job. Never thought I would be talking to Ken Jennings about <laughs> no. what happens after I die, I but we're going to do it coming up on Studio 2. And of course, we and the producers could mm-hmm. not resist making Ken Jennings our mm-hmm. weekly Studio 2 trivia contestant this later is, this hour. This is history right And here. you're leveling up your quiz master persona. I cannot <laughs> wait I'm gonna to ask, witness this. I'm going to ask Ken Jennings. A trivia question. If he gets it right, he gets a Studio 2 grocery tote bag. He's just like everybody this else. This is the biggest moment in the history of trivia as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Um, but first, before we get to all that, Jerry, huge night for the Philadelphia yes, Phillies night. last night. And how could you not love baseball? Mm-hmm. So many games, and they all, or most of them, fade into dust immediately. You can't remember fade one that happened dust. you know, mm-hmm. three days ago because they all seem so similar. And then you turn on your TV in the fifth inning on a Wednesday in August, Mm -hmm. and you realize something strange is happening. This guy pitching for the Phillies right now, Michael Lorenzen, he hasn't let up a hit yet. And Mm -hmm. he hasn't let up a hit yet into the sixth and the seventh and the eighth and the ninth. ninth. And then there's two outs in the ninth, and then you hear this call from Tom McCarthy. Swung on, popped up, shallow center field. Rojas sprinting it, he's under it. He has space, makes the catch, and Michael Lorenzen has thrown the 14th no-hitter in Philadelphia Phillies history. He is being mobbed by his teammates as the Phillies shut out the Nationals 7-0. Chills. Even I knew that this was a big deal and it's it was time deal. to cheer. 14 no-hitters in franchise history. The Phillies have played 21,324 games. Only 14 no-hitters. So wow. we had to take a moment, pause, mm-hmm. talk about all of this with John Stolness host of the WHYY Billy Penn podcast, Hitting Season. That's a podcast all about the Phillies. John, thanks for joining us on Studio 2. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a fun day to talk some Phils. Absolutely. Uh, tell me about where you were last night watching this game and your emotions watching it. Well, I was. I live in the D.C. area, as a lot of you guys know, so of course they're playing the Nationals, and, and my son is a big Nationals fan, so oh. we were kind of keeping track of it as, as we were doing other things, and, and by the time the seventh inning rolled around, we, we put it on the TV, and uh, we were just watching it here at home, and of course he's hoping that somebody on the Nationals is going to break through and, and get a hit while I'm at the same time not so low-key rooting for him to, <laughs> for him to just kind of keep mowing through the Nationals lineup. Yeah, I, I got to ask you this because for folks who may not know why this is so special, Avi laid out some stats on this, but, mm. you know, folks were crying in the stands. Just explain why this is such a big deal. 
Yeah, I mean, these don't happen every day, especially for the Phillies. From my memory, I think this is only maybe the third no-hitter ever to happen at home. I know Terry Mulholland threw one in 1990. Uh, there was Roy Halladay's no-hitter in the playoffs in 2010. And this one, I think every other no-hitter has been on the road. So we don't get to see this a whole lot here in Philadelphia. It's been a hot minute since 2015 when Cole Hamels threw his. Uh, we haven't seen one at home, like we said, since Halladay's. And so I think the, a lot of the tears you saw were from the family members who were in attendance. I mean, you had Michael Lorenzen's mother and you had his wife with their nine-month-old baby in the stands watching his first ever game in Philadelphia in front of the fans of Citizens Bank Park. And it looked like to me that they might take him out after the seventh inning. His pitch count had gotten really high and he really needed to be efficient to get through the last two innings and be allowed to stay in the game. It was, it wasn't a sure thing that he was going to be allowed to stay in there and finish it. So when he did, it was kind of just an emotional release for everybody. Adding to the drama of it all. And as you mentioned, John, the last Phillies pitcher before this to throw a no hitter was Cole Hamels, who was a legendary pitcher for the team. He was making what turned out to be his final start as a Philly, and it was this valedictory moment for him as mm. a Philly. And this is the flip side, right? Michael Lorenzen, I think a lot of Phillies fans don't even really know who he is. So who is Michael Lorenzen? He just joined the team. Yeah, he's been in the big leagues for about nine or ten years. He was with the Reds for a long time as a as a relief pitcher. He was actually better known as a really, really good hitting pitcher. He actually played some center field for the Reds mm. when he wasn't in the bullpen. Uh, so he's actually got a really good bat. Uh, this year, the, the Phillies picked him up at midseason at the trade deadline from the Detroit Tigers. He was an all-star with Detroit this year. Funny story, when he was told that he was going to the All-Star game, he thought his manager was kidding with him because at the time he had an ERA in in the mid-fours and he didn't think he had pitched well enough to be an All-Star. So he went, and since then he has an ERA just above one. He's really come on over the last six or seven starts, and uh, he's just a journeyman who's been plugging away for years and years and years, and this is his first real opportunity this season to be an everyday Major League starter, and he's really taking advantage of it. Yeah, I got to ask you, you kind of mentioned some of the limitations on the pitcher um, in your discussion about the significance of this no-hitter. And we had you on the show before talking about some of the changes to the Mm. game of baseball. How's that going? And, you know, just generally, I was able to go see a game on Tuesday. Missed it by one day. I know, they did. They didn't (laughs) win. They didn't even win. But then for it to turn around and get this no-hitter the next day, amazing. Just how is it all going? Is the game doing what it was supposed to do? I'm sorry to hear you missed a, a home no-hitter. So, <laughs> you, just, you, you just reminded me uh, of a, a no-hitter in 2003 that Kevin Millwood threw at Veterans Stadium. Right. So there's another home no-hitter. And mm-hmm. I was I was supposed to go to that game and oh, had no. to miss out on it. So, so you know uh, how I'm going to make both of you jealous. I was at the Roy Halladay postseason no-hitter, which was the last one at home. Oh, just rub it in. I was just there. Rub yeah. it in. I was there. Bobby. But I, we got to get back on track. So quickly, yeah. John. Um, The changes Mm -hmm. to speed up the game, how have you been enjoying them, and and are they working overall? It is working. It's it's shaved off a half an hour from game time, and it's all dead time. Time. Nobody's. There are no fewer pitches being thrown. I mean, you're getting just as much offense. The game is just moving quicker. There's less mm. dead time between pitches. And I don't know that that the, the the clock has had an effect on whether or not pitchers. Some pitchers have struggled with it. I think Aaron Nola is one who has. Others haven't. For Lorenzen, maybe the having to continue to pitch quickly just kind of kept him in a zone, kept him wow. in rhythm. Um, there's also a possibility for some pitchers that it doesn't allow them enough time to rest between pitches and to gather their thoughts. It really is just dependent on how the pitcher operates. So it's but it's been good. I think it's been a really healthy change. And real quick before we let you go, John Weston Wilson, uh, 
was called up to the Phillies, played his first game last night. This was overshadowed. Hit a home mm. run in his first at-bat, and I believe still has not recorded an out in his major league career. No. Who, who is this guy, and, and what's, what's been his journey to this moment? Because it was a great moment for him and his family. Yeah, he's had nearly 3,000 plate appearances in the minor leagues over the course of seven seasons wow. without ever getting a chance to hit at the major leagues. And he's obviously getting a chance because Brandon Marsh got hurt. They put him in left field last night, and he he hit a shot to, to deep left center field. And his dad's in the stands. His whole family is in the stands, just like Lorenzen. His dad's crying after the home Aww. run. Um, it, it's just It was such an emotional night at the ballpark last night because you have this kid who has just been struggling for years and years and years and years to finally get his one shot, his first chance to be in the major leagues and on his first plate appearance his second swing ever as a big league hitter he hits a 435 foot home run to left center field it's just it's storybook and there's so many stories like this throughout major league history uh this is just this this is one that has a phillies flavor to it and it's so much fun baseball is magic i know and we'll have to leave it there thank you so much that's john solness host of whyy billy penn's hitting hitting season podcast great to have you on studio too john Thanks for having me. You can find Hidden Season wherever you get your podcasts or stream it at BillyPenn.com slash Hidden Season. And speaking of seasons. Speaking oh, speaking of seasons, <laughs> it's the summer season. Um, and you know, this is the time when most people are headed down the Jersey Shore. But obviously, some rental homes, they have been staying empty, empty. this season. Why? Well, the high prices and People have options. Yes. Yeah. So during the pandemic, if you recall, many families chose a trip to the shore because they couldn't go to Europe because of those travel restrictions. And so investors bought property to make money off that tourism boom. And others realized they could get any price that they wanted. I mean, some of these houses were going for 10 grand for a week. Well, apparently, you know, now that things opened up. Folks decided, you know what? I'm not paying ten grand yeah. for a house on the shore. I'm going to take my family to Europe. Yeah. Uh, great reporting from Amy Rosenberg at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I mean, and now, of course, the prices are coming down to pre-pandemic prices. We had a show about how expensive the Jersey Shore was getting, and uh, we talked a lot about the reasons, mm-hmm. but in the near terms, it seemed like all we really needed was a market correction and people to have all the old options, like you said, their travel mm-hmm. options available to them. And now that they do... The Jersey Shore doesn't quite have the market cornered as it once did. I'm like ten grand for the shore. Okay, y'all, you, they You're were bugging out. Yeah, I'm sorry, but it was a lot. But I, I will say people. that. But now the prices are going down in some cases from ten thousand dollars a week to five. Speaking of travel, let's talk yeah. about traveling artwork now. Uh, the Barnes Foundation. Okay, so before I say anything mm-hmm. about the Barnes Foundation, you got to do a lot of backstory because that's how this thing works. Barnes Foundation. Albert C. Barnes collected a whole bunch of art, kept it in a very unusual place out on the main line for a long, long time, put it in his will, don't move the art, keep it there, it's arranged the way I wanted it. Eventually, after a lot of legal wrangling, they take the collection, kind of override his will, move it down to a beautiful building um, on the parkway. Parkway. That's where the Barnes Foundation art collection is now. Now they are further loosening some of the restrictions on how the art can be used, and they are, for the first time, thanks to a new court decision, going to be able to do some loaning of Mm. artwork to other institutions in the collection. Because remember, Barnes didn't want any of this stuff moved or touched. He didn't even want you to to, to move it from one room to the other. Mm -hmm. Now it could be traveling across oceans. So that is just in, and it's another sign that the Barnes 
collection is becoming more and more, and this is, I say this with no judgment, yeah. uh, becoming more and more like every other museum. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and and it's a good thing. I mean, they get to make money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if they loan, it's a financial benefit to the institution. It also gets to share um, some of the value of the barns. Um, but they're, like you said, it's very restrictive. Only 20 payment. 20 paintings should be on loan simultaneously. Um, And they had a a sort of a, you know, bad situation in the 90s where one of the paintings got um, damaged. And so folks are a little wary. But the judge is trying to, you know, balance everything while, you know, sharing some of the wealth and and some um, some of the educational, uh, you know, opportunities here. But also... You know, abide by right. Barnes's original wishes. At the you same think time. about the history of the institution. It started as something that was sort of completely singular in the art yeah. world, and now it's drifting, you know, closer and closer to the norm. And one of the reasons I believe that that museums swap paintings this way is because, look, if you have the same collection there yeah. every day why of the week, why would you keep going? Why yeah. would people keep going back? And so they have special exhibits, and they they move stuff around the world in order to juice interest um, and keep these institutions viable. And you know, we'll see if it helps the barns. But like you said, it's limited still. Yeah. And speaking of viability, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes, Philadelphia's oh Republican, Republican Party—they Party. yeah. are trying to stay viable here in Philadelphia by getting the Working Families Party off the ballot. Um, they, they are trying to end Philadelphia City Council member Kendra Brooks's bid for a second term in city council and to remove the party from the at-large, for, um, move the, excuse me, to remove the party from the ballot, also from her running mate, Nicholas O'Rourke. Yeah. Um, and this would shift everything for the November uh, ballot. And uh, if you recall, Kendra Brooks, she upset a Republican uh, becoming the first working families party member to to win against yeah. a Republican. And uh, just as a reminder for folks, the way city council works here in Philadelphia, the at-large seats, two of them have to go to someone who yes. is not in the majority party, which in Philadelphia means not a Democrat. And so the Republicans are trying to basically erase their main competition for those two seats by using this technicality to get the two working families parties members thrown off the ballot. And what I thought when I saw this was, okay, if it works, maybe a successful short-term strategy. But if you're trying to maintain your relevance in a city and you, you do that by taking choices away from voters you got to imagine that's going to inspire some long-term ire. So I don't know. This could be short-term benefit, long-term, not so much. I will mention quickly that um, GOP members in New York also uh, tried to take out the Working Family Party there uh, by changing their party affiliation to the Working Family Party to do a hijacking of the ballot. So there's this beef there. All right. Well, that is it for our news roundup today. Coming up. Jeopardy host Ken Jennings talking to us about what happens in the afterlife. Stay tuned. And you put the load right, right, right on me. After I died and the makeup had dried, I went back to my place. No moon that night, but a heavenly light shone on my face. Still I thought it was odd There was no sign of God Just to usher me in Welcome back to Studio 2, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Most of us have wondered about what comes after death. Heaven, hell, or nothing. 
That question has inspired countless religious traditions, myths, books, movies, TV shows, and a whole lot more. And you might be surprised to learn that Jeopardy host and champ Ken Jennings' new book focuses on how the afterlife is brought to life from that song you just heard by Paul Simon, mm-hmm. ancient Egypt, Egyptian depictions of the underworld, Dante's Nine Circles of Hell, Field of Dreams, Beetlejuice, The Sixth Sense, on and on and on. The book is called 100 Places to See After You Die, A Travel Guide to the Afterlife. And Ken Jennings is with us now to take us on a tour. Ken Jennings, welcome to Studio Two. Hey, thank you for having me. And listeners, if you have a question for Ken, the email is studio2 at whyy.org. And our phone number is 888-477-9499. Ken, I have to ask you, what inspired your curiosity about the afterlife and ultimately the desire to write this book in the form of a travel guide, no less? Well, the book was an accident. I was at a bookstore a few years ago, and I, they had a table full of those bucket list books that have a thousand of these to see and a thousand of those to see. But they always say before you die. And it occurred to me they were <laughs> leaving half of the market out. You know, why should all travel books be about what happens before you die? But the fact is, um, you know, I grew up a Gen X kid and anybody my age will remember that that was a time when America was really fascinated with the paranormal. So my childhood was full of mysteries about UFOs and Bigfoot and ghosts. And we all thought the Bermuda Triangle was going to be a very big part of our lives back then for some reason. And, uh, and growing up as one of those kids interested in the unexplained, death and what comes after always seemed like the biggest mystery to me. You know, uh, it matters the most and yet nobody knows. So I loved those kind of stories, ghost stories and near-death experiences and movies and TV shows that purported to show what might await us. It, it's just such a tantalizing thing. It's, it's just there on the other side. Everybody we know will go through it. Uh, if there's something there, they know right now, but we don't. Uh, I love that. I was always interested in that. Do you have an earliest childhood memory of someone sitting you down and telling you, hey, this is what happens after you die? Is there like a foundational moment for you entering into that, that conversation in your mind? Well, I mean, the funny thing is, uh, you know, I you know I would go to Sunday school as a kid, but I don't come from a particularly fire and brimstone kind of tradition like an evangelical kid uh, does. So I don't have the the memories of a of a of a pastor or a nun scaring me with mm. the afterlife, mm. which I think is really formative for me because instead I was just fascinated by it. You know, it would be a it would be an episode of a sitcom where. You know, somebody went to an afterlife with a lot of dry ice on the floor, or it would be a movie with a guardian angel gone awry, like It's a Wonderful Life, or it would be a Twilight Zone episode on rerunning on Sunday afternoon. You know, those were my glimpses of the afterlife. And I think that's why I'm I'm uh, I'm just kind of delighted by by the stories instead of traumatized by them. <laughs> yeah, because death and the afterlife is such a heavy topic, especially in religious circles. I want you to kind of walk us through your process for curating this list of a hundred destinations because there's so many places and directions you can take this. Well, I wanted to keep it light. And so the idea of structuring it as a travel guide really appealed to me because there's a certain kind of voice in travel writing where you're telling people, uh, here are my footsteps. Here's what you should do. You want to feel confident, you know, that it's the ultimate undiscovered country, but if in a travel guide, you want to know, well, here's the best places to eat if I go to the 
Land of the Dead from the Pixar movie Coco, or here are the nicest places to stay in Dante's Inferno, or, you know, here are the real off the beaten path highlights in a Hieronymus Bosch painting, or uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of walking the viewer through the, or the reader through the afterlife in a comforting way. And that's what a lot of our traditions have. There's often guardian angels and orientations in different versions of the afterlife. And so uh, the idea of the book is to provide some of that while, while we're alive. And I just wanted to cast a really wide net. So there's afterlives from video games, songs, Broadway musicals, paintings, theme park rides, comic strips, comic books. Um, you know, it's everything from, from movies and TV all the way back to the oldest papyrus and scrolls. And you keep it light. Um, but of course, when you read through it, you start having some heavy thoughts. And in particular, for me, I kept seeing the parallels or, or the threads that tied together different versions of the afterlife. Like, for instance, there seemed like there were a few different versions where, like, you go somewhere really nice, but you can't stay there forever because we know in our minds that it's going to get boring eventually and then you go somewhere else and you don't know where that is like i felt so many people struggling with the concept of eternity when you described these places in in various faith traditions and in various pop cultural depictions did you have any of those dark thoughts yourself yeah a lot of the a lot of the older religious traditions have some sense of a, a purgatory you know if you're an eastern orthodox you actually ascend through the air and you suffer for a different sin as you rise until you know then at that point you're saved in heaven but you're right there's the other problem modern uh, depictions often include the discovery that um there's no way to depict a perfect heaven because yeah. perfection is is boring and so you have there's a talking head song about what if heaven is boring it's a plot element on the sitcom the good place um for me the darkest parts were some of the depictions of hell there's a <laughs> there's an ancient chinese version you know the tortures of course are are very uh, graphic and visceral. But there's a Chinese version of hell where after all the physical tortures are described, the very worst one of all is you get to go up uh, and peek over a wall and see your hometown. And the torture is that you're seeing it now when you're gone and forgotten. Yeah. You're, everyone's moved on. You know, your spouse is remarried. Your kids have forgotten you. Your inheritance has been squandered. No one thinks or talks about you anymore. You know, the ultimate the ultimate punishment was being forgotten. And yeah. the Chinese knew that 3000 years ago. That, that's chilling to me. It's like a reverse Tom Sawyer type of situation. Where, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it was, it was weird. And I remember the Chinese one uh, that you describe in the book, it, it's very bureaucratic too, which was, it's, it seems a reflection of life. And so many of the paradises or the hells are reflections of, you know, society at that moment. Did you think about that when you were writing about some of the, the more modern depictions like what prejudices what 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 rules what types of thoughts are being reflected in these visions of of paradise and hell right the book is really stealth sociology because you see what a culture values you know even the very old paradises you know if if heaven is just a place with no crop failures you're like wow these people were just terrified of of crop failures and that shaped all their thinking you know that was what that was what determined if their kids might get through the winter um, whereas with more modern ones, you see what our fears are. Uh, the 20th century has l- brought with it lots of bureaucratic heavens, like the Chinese one, uh, where there's always kind of a fussy angel with a clipboard and somebody's going through files. There's a lot of clerks, you know, for comic effect, the idea that our, uh, uh, heaven might be as mechanized as mid-century America. Um, but that kind of re- reflects kind of maybe what we're worrying about, about those systems. 
today I see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of streaming shows that have the afterlife. They, they have a lot of boredom in them, just kind of existential angst. Um, some of them have worries about technology. Uh, you know, what if, uh, you know, what if heaven is being uploaded to the cloud? <laughs> right, uh, right. Worries about the gig economy, you know, people in heaven who still have to do terrible jobs like the TV show Dead Like Me. You know, the afterlife is really just an extension of of what we think about the here and now. And I just want to play a clip because one of uh, one of my movies as a child that I loved to watch was Beetlejuice. And in this 1988 classic, a young couple played by Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin, they die in a car accident and they're shocked and they're looking for answers. Handbook for the recently diseased. Deceased. Deceased. I don't know where it came from. Look at that publisher. Handbook for the recently deceased press. You know what? I don't think we survived the crash. <laughs> that that always. I mean, they had to. They had to enter this bureaucracy to yeah. get answers as they're stuck in purgatory. But I want to ask you this question, Ken, because um, a, do you did you find that um, that religions or cultural phenomenon focus more on the darker side of the afterlife versus the the paradise side? Because it seemed like a lot of the stories talked about different versions of hell. Yeah, the versions of hell are always way more um, uh, painstakingly depicted. You know, a, a list of weird sins that will land you in hell. You know, whether for the Chinese that was littering, throwing pottery shards over your fence, um, borrowing a book and not returning it in Hinduism. Um, you know, there's very specific problems if you you know you flirt with your you flirt with your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law. That's a very specific punishment mm. in hell. And, and I think the detail must be on some level, it's it's fear. You know, it's a, a system trying to keep people in line by saying, well, here's what happens if you if you throw pottery over the fence. But I think on another level, at some point, it moves beyond that from the religious cast. It moves to artists. And it's just more fun to depict hell than heaven. Hell and purgatory at least have some sense of uh, development. There's a comeuppance. Uh, if heaven is perfect every day, you know, there are really interesting heavens. Mark Twain wrote about a heaven where everyone chooses to be old rather than young, mm. because it turns out that's the most comfortable, peaceful state of life. So there are discoveries in writings about heaven. But for whatever reason, um, you know, hell gets all the I guess hell has all the blood and gore. Yeah. We are talking with uh, Jeopardy host Ken Jennings about his latest book, 100 Places to See After You Die. You are listening to Studio Two. On WHYY. If you want to join the conversation, drop us an email, studio2 at whyy.org, or give us a call, 888 477 9499. You know, uh, I, I grew up in the Jewish faith, Ken, and uh, I went to religious school for years and years and years, and granted, maybe I wasn't paying the best attention, but I had never heard of, I don't even know how to pronounce, Gehenna and Gan Eden, which are uh, respectively the hell and heaven described by some Jewish scholars. Um, and I was sort of thinking to myself, why have I never really heard of these things? Why are they not emphasized? Did you, did you feel yourself trying to explain, perhaps to yourself, not so much the readers, but to yourself, why certain faiths opted for different types of heavens and hells and why they emphasize them to various degrees? 
Yeah, you know, I couldn't help but thinking a lot about that. I'm, I'm not a theologian or a professional religious scholar. I mean, notably, I'm a Gentile. From what I understand in the <laughs> Jewish tradition, from what I understand in the Jewish tradition is there's a lot of emphasis on the here and now. You yeah. know, how do we make our lives better uh, now? You know, what's the right way to live before God now? Um, and so therefore, you know, you don't get these tales, but there are stories, you know, just different kinds of, uh, a lot of them are medieval, you know, there's really nothing about Gehenna or Gan Eden in the Torah, but, you know, a lot of these stories are medieval. They, they seem to accrete in religious traditions over the years, just, just new layers because people are so curious. People ask, people wonder, mystics have visions. And so you get these very detailed stories that are, were really never part of the, of the core religious faith at all, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I was raised Catholic and yet um, my family, they constantly talk about talk to your ancestors, your grandmother and great grandfather. They're there with you, clearing, fighting battles before you walk in a room. And I realized that that is based in some of the African traditions. Yeah. And I never it wasn't part of my organized religion. And and did you as you did the research for this book, did you see a lot of mixing and matching as far as like what is considered part of pop culture? Like in the films, they're taking a little bit from this religion, a little bit from that culture and mixing it all together. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the things that uh, I think uh, is are generally believed about the Christian heaven and hell, for example, don't come from the Bible at all. They come from John Milton. They come from mm. Paradise Lost. You know, we think we have this idea of, of who Lucifer is and how he fell and what Satan wants. And the Bible has almost nothing about that. There's like two verses about Lucifer in Isaiah. Everything else comes from a very long epic poem written, uh, you know, 1600 years later. Uh, so these traditions accumulate over time and we don't always remember the origin. We just remember how they made us feel. I was thinking about uh, you talk a lot in here about Dante and there's, you know, Dante's mm -hmm. version of how there's like all sorts of Greek and Roman figures dancing around for some reason that way. I, it seemed like you were a little confused. I was a little confused, too. I don't exactly know why, but I guess that's just the way these things work. They're all kind of amalgams. Well, Dante's funny because he doesn't seem self-aware that he's not really that great a world builder. He's, <laughs> he goes he goes to hell. And so, you know, there's presumably billions of, of suffering souls there. And the only people he ever meets are like really famous literary characters, you know, like Helen of Troy. And then he just meets um, his neighbors back home and particularly his rivals from his time who are now in hell suffering because because he had a bone to pick against them. <laughs> so this is this is the book that survives for centuries is Dante uh, kind of gloating because his political rivals from Renaissance era Florence are suffering in hell and he's not. It's a, it's kind of a funny small view of the world, but I guess when you look back far enough, that's what all these, yeah, that's what all these afterlives are. You know, field of dreams is one guy's very specific feelings about baseball. That's, that's just how the internet, that's how the afterlife gets created. Yeah. And if you just tuned in, we are speaking with Ken Jennings, Jeopardy host author of a brand new book titled 100 Places to See After You Die. Ken, wondering where all this curiosity comes from, because, I mean, you're a very knowledgeable person. I mean, very successful Jeopardy contestant. Now you're a host. Um, and you seem to know a lot of information. Where did you get this original curiosity to learn so many things about so many different things? You know, I've thought about that a lot over the years after being on a game show of all things changed my life. And luckily, I've been able to meet other people 
like me, you know, those weird trivia kids who were always carrying around the Guinness Book of World Records and annoying their teachers and their parents and their <laughs> friends with with uh, facts about uh, polar bears and the biggest omelet ever cooked or, you know, whatever it was. And I think the thing all those people have in common is we're very curious. Mm. And a lot of people are curious, but trivia people are omnivorous about their curiosity. We're curious about everything. Most people just tend to specialize like, well, yeah, I follow baseball, but not football. Or um, I really like jazz, but I don't follow pop. You know, uh, people tend to carve out niches, whereas for whatever reason, trivia people are curious about everything. You know, whatever the new thing is, it's like a shiny object. We're, we're magpies and, and we'll go down that rabbit hole. And the, the great blessing there is that when you're interested in a thing, you don't have to try to remember all the facts. You know, the, the stuff you love just sticks in your head, the lyrics to the song you like or or the names of the of the players on the team you follow, you know, those things just stick without even trying to. So if you could unlock that interest in your head, mm. you would basically have a photographic memory. You'd remember everything. And I think trivia people are close to that, and I'm a believer in it. I think it's a great way to live. I want to bring in an email here from Frank, who, who says, uh, points out that we haven't talked about reincarnation mm. yet. What about reincarnation? Any insight on what's the best form to come back as? I suppose that's an opinion question for you, Ken, but I actually was surprised reincarnation appears in more traditions than I, I actually realized. And, and this book uh, enlightened me to that. So let's talk a little bit about reincarnation. And I suppose, what would you like to come back as? Yeah, a lot of modern afterlives have reincarnation because it's a convenient uh, plot point. It's, you know, yes. it's an ending. Your, your, your character gets reborn as, you know, if the Hindus believed you could be a clump of grass or a bug. Generally in, in fiction, somebody's coming back as a baby in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a tradition that you can actually choose your next life. That in the bardo, you can you can see different see different futures for yourselves, kind of floating around you, and and gravitate towards the ones you like. Uh, you can actually see your parents in the act of conceiving you. Uh, it's wow. not something I would want to see, but <laughs> I'll pass on that. Believe, yeah. The Tibetans believe that. Yeah, to me that would be hell. But the, for the Tibetans, <laughs> that, was, that was the bardo. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, you know, I've been very. I feel like I've been very happy and lucky in my current life, and maybe it, maybe it would be good for me to have some, uh, good for my the empathy of my karma to to come back in a very different situation. You know, the other side of the world, not the privileges of being a white middle class American, um, or or maybe a golden retriever. I have a golden retriever, <laughs> and she seems to have a very happy, easy life. So that would be nice too. Yeah, I saw that people could come back as as grass. Like you know, yeah. you there's all different levels of reincarnation. Um, I just want to. I'm I'm just fascinated at your trajectory because you grew up like you know loving uh, Jeopardy, and then sort of like that that you you ended up writing quiz questions, editing quiz questions. How did you prepare like for a game? I, I know I'm I'm fascinated with this Jeopardy situation just because I wonder how you prepared to be to a contestant, be a contestant yeah. and then how that differs from preparing to be a host. You know, I do feel very lucky. It was it's just such a bizarre thing that this was always my favorite show as a kid. And now, you know, 40 years later, I'm I'm still identified with the show. It's such a bizarre treat. But uh yeah, I mean, preparing for the show, you can't really cram for Jeopardy. You know, the, the host could ask you anything. It it could be the, you know, it could be about the Franco-Prussian War, and then suddenly it's going to be about country music or doing anagrams in your head. You know, there's really not a lot of ways to prepare. But I did watch the show religiously, and I think that really 
helped. Um, you see the kinds of things that Jeopardy asks about all the time. Oh, I, it seems like I should know all my world's capitals. I should know the presidents with their dates so I know what happened when. You know, you can see the patterns. But I also just got really used to the rhythms of, of Alex Trebek's voice. And that turned out to be really important. The Jeopardy buzzer is tricky and, and figuring out mm -hmm. the timing is tricky. And the funny thing is, you know, I was terrified when I was asked to guest host and later host the show. But it turned out to be the same preparation. I would just go back and watch tape of Alex because wow. he was so perfect for that job. And he had 38 years to perfect it. Um, he, he just had an easy grace about him. And I realized, you know, if I just watch how he did it, um, I'm never going to be him, but I can't go that far wrong. So it was really kind of the same preparation. Do you have a favorite moment from your time on the show or even your time as host now? <sighs> the funny thing is, it's been 20 years, but nothing beats that first game. Mm. You know, winning that first game, I was so terrified. And I see it now as a host. The contestants, many of it's a very intense experience. And so many of them are really, they're really going through something up there. You know, they've got jitters at best. Sometimes they're, they're, they're really kind of having an out-of-body experience. You're, you're in a fugue state up there. The game moves so fast and it's so, everything's so unexpected. And I knew that going in that it was going to be stressful. And I thought, you know what? I just don't want to be the person who's negative going into Final Jeopardy and gets booted early. You know, mm -hmm. I always felt bad for those people. Yeah. So my one dream was to not get, you know, kicked out before the during the third commercial setting and, the bar low there <laughs> exactly but i think that's realistic because yeah. you don't know what you're gonna face out there it's a it's a tough climb and so when i unexpectedly won that first game i just remember this wave of uh like relief washing over me like you know what i'm a jeopardy champion now you know for the rest of my life yeah. i get to drop that into conversations um and the funny thing is now you, you know even after winning 73 more times or winning a tournament or or being asked to host the show you know these are all remarkable honors but but nothing's as good as the relief of hey i i just won a game of my favorite show this is amazing yeah and that goat trophy by the way the greatest you of all time trophy. i love that trophy it's like the best <laughs> i um i have it at home they wouldn't give it to me after the game they were afraid that somebody when i was flying home somebody at tsa would see it and realized that I had won and it would leak out, you know, early because the games weren't going to air for another week or two. So I was not allowed to take the trophy home because Jeopardy doesn't trust TSA. All right. I got to give you one more question before we go to break, um, because, of course, I was asking myself this as I was reading the book. Ken, what do you think happens to us after we die? <laughs> you know, I'm ready for anything. And I'm ready <laughs> to cop out. OK, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll give no, it to you. I mean, let me say, like, it, it's the most obvious point, but there's really no evidence for any of these stories. You know, maybe nothing is the most likely option by Occam's razor. I know what I would personally like, which is answers. There's really not a lot of records of a heaven where it, you're, it's spent learning all the knowledge that evaded you in life. You know, like that is a that through, is like, a trivia nerd's answer right there, Ken Jennings. <laughs> But it's not always trivia. It might be like, what were those people yelling at at the airport that one time? Uh, or, you know, what happened What happened to Amelia Earhart? What killed the dinosaurs? Which girls actually liked me in fourth grade? You know, wow. you, you never know these things. And maybe God would tell us if we asked. Omniscience. Interesting. Well, Ken Jennings, you're actually sticking with us through the break, which we're going to take right now as we listen to Just Like Heaven by The Cure on Studio Two.
This is Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And this is Trivia Thursday. (laughs) You know, I love to say that. Uh, And Ken Jennings is still here, and he's agreed to be our trivia contestant. Ken, we're so excited to have you here. (laughs) It's been a while since I've been a contestant. I might be a little rusty. (laughs) But quick question before Avi, uh, our quiz master, lays out his question. Will, can we expect to see you you know, hosting the season. I know there's this writer's strike, but will you still be hosting um, with all this going on? Yeah, the, uh, you know, the strike has really upended our uh, plans for the season. We had very elaborate plans and now we're kind of going to have to run in place with, um, with reused contestants and redeploy, uh, redeployed material. Um, I'm working with Jeopardy right now on that scheduling and, uh, You'll know when I know. Stay tuned. All right. Well, right now, and I know, look, Ken, you, you've won a lot of money uh, playing trivia contests, I believe over $4 million, but you've never won yep. the most prized mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> most prized award in all of midday public radio trivia, which is a Studio 2 grocery tote bag, which you can secure wow. if you get this, question, <laughs> get this question right. I'm also going to say before I ask you this, Ken, if this question is extremely easy for you, just please pretend it's hard, okay? Pretty please. <laughs> if, this is, if this is Philly trivia, it better be about Rocky or I'm, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> okay. No, it's not about Rocky. All right, here's the question. Philadelphia's Fleer Corporation invented Double Bubble, the first commercially successful bubblegum right here in Philadelphia. Fleer was also well-known for producing what other non-candy product? Uh, do I have to answer in the form of a question? <laughs> if you want to. Uh, I'm going to say, what, if, if I'm remembering my childhood right, what are baseball cards? That is correct! Winner, winner, chicken dinner! <laughs> baseball and trading yeah. cards. And in fact, the backstory is for a while, they, they could only sort of tread lightly in the baseball card world because Tops had this exclusive arrangement with with MLB, but then there was this big antitrust case in the 70s and 80s that broke the market open for Fleer. So there you go. Ken Jennings, you are a Studio 2 trivia champion. Add that to your resume. Gum and baseball cards. My childhood is paying off again. Yes, and we and it's not a goat trophy, but that tote bag is pretty That's darn right. nice. Feel free to tweet it out if you'd like. Um, thank I you. will. I will use it to carry my trophy around. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ken, you, Ken Jennings. Now, if you want to be the next Studio Two trivia contestant and follow in Ken's footsteps, you can leave us a message at two one five. Three five one zero five two five, and the producers they'll call you back, and if you're selected, we'll let you know. Tanya Pendleton's and Ken, we just wanted to oh. thank you for being on the show and uh, for joining us on Studio Two. It was such a pleasure; I had a great time. So Ken's new book, by the way, is One Hundred Places to See After You Die: A Travel Guide to the Afterlife. And after that, what do we got? We got Tanya Pendleton's. <laughs> List of things to do. Sorry about that, kid. <laughs> Here it is. Hit it, Adam. 
we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop this year. Legend has it that when DJ Cool Herc threw a block party for his sister on August 11th, 1973 in front of 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx, he started the global phenomenon. The celebration starts in Philly with DJ Cash Money and DJ Active at The Man at 8 p.m. on Thursday. They're headlining Philly Pillars and Pioneers, Chill Moody's latest Downstage at the Man, a series that celebrates hip-hop. Other events are also happening around the city. Hip-hop ambassador Tame Arts is hosting his second annual Hip Hop in the Park event on Saturday from noon to 8 p.m. at the Oval. It's free with an RSVP. And at Francisville Playground, the four elements of hip-hop, DJing, b-boying, emceeing, and graffiti art will be on display also on Saturday and also free. The Elements of Hip Hop 2023 goes from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. and we'll have all the details on our website, whyy.org slash things to do. They're antique and they're classic. They're fast and they're furious. Those are the kind of cars you'll see at the 2023 New Hope Automobile Show. The show takes place on Saturday, August 12th and Sunday, August 13th. On Saturday, domestic cars, motorcycles, and professional vehicles will be on display from some of the first vehicles in production to contemporary models. On Sunday, it's all foreign cars, including Ferraris, Maseratis, Porsches, and Rolls Royces. The show takes place at New Hope Solbury High School from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day. It's a bug's life. At the Bug Fest. The weekend festival is happening at the Academy of Natural Sciences on Saturday and Sunday. The fest is free with regular museum admission. The daily programming includes the ever popular roach races, special exhibits and demonstrations, and a chance to meet and chat with entomologists. While insects are essential to our ecosystem, sometimes they're dangerous. A film screening event in Delaware explains the challenges of chronic Lyme disease, which is transmitted by tick bites. Here's a disease that's affecting a lot of people, can be costly, and there's been a very active effort to define not Lyme disease away, but chronic Lyme disease away. A special showing of the quiet epidemic at the screening room at 1313 in Wilmington will be followed by a Q&A on the impact of chronic Lyme disease and its controversial history. It's happening Friday, August 11th at 6 p.m. The event is free. The Philadelphia Obon Festival is held annually to honor the ancestors. In Japanese culture, August is the time people return to their hometowns to remember loved ones that have passed on. Traditional music and dance performances are part of the celebration that culminates in the Obon Lantern Ceremony next weekend. The free festival takes place on Saturday, August 12th at Shofuso Japanese Cultural Center in Fairmont Park. It goes from 2 to 7 p.m. We started out this week's Things to Do acknowledging hip-hop's 50th anniversary. This weekend, we have two of its pioneering superstars in town. 50 Cent and Busta Rhymes are headed to the Freedom Mortgage Pavilion in Camden on Saturday. 
50 is celebrating the 20-year anniversary of his hit album, Get Rich or Die Trying. Looks like that worked out for him. The show starts at 7 p.m. We never knew rap would take it this far, but it did thanks to those artists and many more. Happy birthday, hip-hop. And that's it for this week's Things to Do. It's been fun, but time for us to go. We'll be back next Thursday with more Weekend Options. If you want to hear details and info on even more events, head to our website, whyy.org slash things to do. Whatever you choose to do, have a great weekend, everyone. Boom, boom. Everyone knows that beat. I know. And tomorrow is the actual 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Happy 50th hip-hop. I know. This has been a big week. We had the president of the Philadelphia Federal Federal Reserve Reserve Bank Bank here. I mean, we talked. We had our Eric Thomas on talking about his new book. We had Ken Jennings on. Yeah, Ken Jennings on. It was a fun week of studio, too. Um, I actually wanted to mention one thing that we didn't talk to Ken about in the book that I found so fascinating. Mm -hmm. The percentage of Americans who believe in God or participate in formal religion has declined significantly since the 1970s. The percent who believe in the afterlife has actually increased. Wow. We can't shake that. We, we, there has Mm -hmm. to be something beyond this, even if our adherence to dogmatic religion starts to waver. I found that so fascinating. Fascinating. And it makes you want to read the whole book. Yeah. And thanks so much to Ken Jennings. Again, his book, 100 Places to See After You Die. And that wraps up our show for today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Adam Staniszewski is our engineer. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. For more of our show, you can head on over to whyy.org slash studio two. Or download it wherever you get your pods. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg. My name is Avi Lil Wolfie <laughs> Wolfman Arendt. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>